This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Boy, it is hard to believe it's already Tuesday, January 11th, first month of 2012, almost in the rearview mirror. We got some news at the tail end of the day on Monday. It was announced by uh, Tom Vilsack, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, and U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai that American pork will now be able to be sold in India. This is a battle that has uh, has been brewing for, oh gosh, 25 years. Finally got some access into that market for U.S. pork producers. It worked out really well. Today on the show, we were already planning to talk with Glenn Tonser. He's a professor at Kansas State University in the Department of Agricultural Economics, Agricultural Economics, rather, and he publishes the Meat Demand Monitor. He also keeps an eye on what's happening around the world. Dr. Tonser, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Good morning. I wanted to ask you first about this pork going into India. Seems like a big move for the American protein market, pork in particular. Uh, do you see this ramp- ramping up relatively quickly? Uh, from the perspective of the U.S. industry, I hope so. Uh, the devil's in the details, and global marketplace is certainly complex. But to put a bow around this, uh, I, I usually say we sell everything but the oink. Uh, there's a large number of products. It's not just bacon, ham, and sausage and pork chops. There's a lot of things that come off each hog we produce. And getting them in the hands of consumers that most value them, and foreign markets tend to value some items differently than domestic, uh, that raises the profile and the value of those animals. And these kind of announcements, uh, particularly in a country that's as populous as uh, India, populated that is, uh, can be a very good thing. So I hope it happens quickly. I hope it materializes uh, as stated, and I hope it's sustained for decades because that is a large protein consumption base we could market to. It certainly is. And their economic uh, returns look like they're on the upswing over in India. And Glenn, you said it's all about finding somebody with the willingness to pay for a particular cut. And that is something you track specifically. And I wanted to get in on the meat demand monitor. This is a report you published, Glenn. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so this is a project. It's a collaboration and funded by the Beef and the Pork Checkoff housed here at Kansas State University. It was officially launched February of 2020. So it just so happens that you know, we get go about a month before COVID changed all our lives. So we're honing in on almost two years of this. It is an ongoing survey estimate-based uh, project. So over 2,000 U.S. respondents throughout each month uh, complete a standard survey that um, my, my collaborators have built. The whole goal is to, as the name suggests, monitor meat demand here domestically. Uh, we're able to speak specifically to retail and food service market channels differently because we target questions about what you're doing at home versus away from home. That was really important in knowledge gap before COVID, but as your listeners will know, uh, with stay-at-home orders and concerns about restaurant safety and all those kind of things that came with COVID, uh, the value of that has been magnified for sure. It certainly has, and food service still really hasn't recovered since the the shutdowns and the, the COVID slowdown in purchases. Glenn, what did you learn? I know December was the most recent report published. What are some of the trends you're keeping an eye on? So it's a good story for the meat industry. And per the funding, this is beef and pork focused primarily. Uh, And and I want to make the important distinction between consumption and demand. Uh, I think I've told your listeners about that before. Um, But we have a good story on both fronts. So we asked what you consumed yesterday separate by meal. So narrowly, did you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner at home? And if so, you know, away from home, what protein was in it and the like? And because of that, we can peg if beef or pork or some other protein was in each of those meals yesterday. And comparing December of 2021 with 2020 values, consumption is holding steady is the point of that. But that doesn't tell the whole story. The real story is demand is strong. So we monitor, um, I use the term willingness to pay, so the amount consumers are willing to pay for an item, whether that's a ribeye steak at your grocery store, whether that's a pork chop based meal in the food service channel. Again, we talk channel specific here. And the beef and the pork items that we are regularly tracking in this effort, uh, demand is up notably in December of 2021 versus December of 20. That's an excellent thing. That's more resources in the industry. Uh, that needs to be kept front and center in a broad, uh, in the midst of lots of other controversial discussions in the industry. 
It does. And Glenn, you mentioned that difference between consumption and demand. I, I know you've talked about it before, but for folks who've maybe not heard you, what is the difference? How do you differentiate those two and how do you track those two separately in the meat demand monitor? Yeah, so the, the, the consumption piece is simple to track. It's basically asking what you had yesterday. And there's other metrics from USDA that are lagged about six weeks. We can cross-check that with. That's sort of a disappearance, how much we, we think is in the system that's a proxy for what's consumed. But neither of those give us any information about the value or the amount paid. And if you want to say something about demand strength, you have to understand something about both the volume as well as the price that's being paid or the value you place on it. So when I say demand is going up, we may actually not have a larger volume consumed, but the amount paid for it willingly and voluntarily by consumers has went up, and that in itself is a good thing. It is possible that you could have demand go up while consumption is going down. I won't get in the weeds of that here for your listeners, but that important separation between the volume consumed without any consideration of price versus a demand measure that can accounts for both is really important. Uh, to, to drive the point home maybe for your listeners, Consumption of meat protein would probably go up domestically if we lost exports. And we open this up with a positive news about gaining export potential, and that's great. But we have experience in the past where, for various reasons, we've lost access. Well, those pounds tend to be consumed somewhere. They go to their second or maybe their 20th you know, most valuable market as we lose market access. That's not an example of demand going up, yet consumption went up. So the, those kind of distinctions between consumption and demand are really important. The meat demand monitor hones in and allows us to track both dimensions. So as we're thinking about that willingness to pay, you know, I think everybody out there who's bought meat at the grocery store meat case in the past two years has seen that huge price spike in the beef side. And while pork prices have climbed as well, it hasn't been necessarily as strong on the beef. Have you seen consumers willingness to pay skyrocket right along with beef prices at the uh, grocery store case? Yes, short answer that's yes. And, and here's where an important distinction to bridge our whole interview. The, the meat demand monitor is domestic focused, but the meat industry is global. We have both foreign demand as well as domestic. And one of the reasons is foreign demand for beef is particularly strong as we progress through 2021. Uh, again, trade data has lagged a little bit, but all the data we have through November was record setting for the year. And domestic consumers are competing with foreign consumers for that highly desired beef is what we're talking about there. And that domestic demand strength has been on par. So both domestic and foreign demand have been very strong. You brought up the, you know, the, the observed price. Back up for a moment. Another thing that the meat demand monitor allows us to do is tackle hot topics um, because it's an ongoing survey that I can tweak and adjust questions to some as we go. Uh, since about March of 2021, we've been capturing expected prices. Uh, because of the food price inflation discussion. And that's an example of something we can speak to. And consumers continue to anticipate higher retail meat prices here in the U.S. And of course, that's been realized pretty much every month since March. It has, and it's something a lot of folks are going to want to keep their eye on. Glenn, if listeners want to follow the Meat Demand Monitor, where's a good website they can go for information? Yeah, so our agmanager.info, so just like it sounds, ag, and then manager.info is the main extension website for the Ag Econ Department at K-State. There's a page dedicated to that. I'm cross-linking on Twitter. You're welcome to email me, uh, gtons or at ksu.edu. Any of those are um, should be able to find the page. The raw data, the reports, and the like are all there for your listeners. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Glenn Tonser. We'll be back with more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system because I know they've got my back. Their spray early weed control guarantee helps me get the most out of early season applications. If I experience less than commercially acceptable performance, I'm eligible for up to $18 per acre on additional applications. That's a system I can depend on. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system. See program details at sprayearlyguarantee.com. Guarantee is subject to program restrictions. Always follow pesticide label directions. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. 
Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA. That first segment there, we had a conversation with Dr. Glenn Tonser from Kansas State, the Department of Agricultural Economics, and he was talking about the meat demand monitor. One of the things he mentioned as he was tracking the willingness of U.S. consumers to pay for beef was that U.S. consumers are competing with the globe in beef in particular because foreign demand has been so strong over the past two years. Well, that foreign demand has largely been from China, at least the new foreign and demand to the American market. And I feel like it's always worth taking the time to check in on China and how our trade with them is shaping up. And to help us do that, Simon Lester, former trade law professor at law schools around the country, currently the founder and editor of the China Trade Monitor is joining us today. Simon, how are you doing? Pretty good, how are you doing, Mike? Good to be here. Not too bad, Simon. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And I wanted to ask you about that foreign demand, particularly that Chinese demand for beef. As you look out into this year ahead, does China look like it's going to continue to be a strong purchaser of uh, of American agricultural products? I, I think it is. Um, I think that uh, China's demand for beef is something that's intensified over the past, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Historically, they were more of a, a pork people, um, but they got the taste for beef uh, there was, you know, they started uh, you know, many years ago buying U.S. beef, but then we had you know, the, the mad cow disease problems, and so they cut it off. But a couple of years ago, they let it back in, and U.S. beef has been really making some progress in, in sales to China. You know, uh, while we were out of the market, the Australians and the Brazilians um, had, had really picked up their sales and were kind of dominating the, the, the market on the import side. Uh, but the, uh, China and Australia have had some diplomatic issues, and that, that's hurt sales uh, by the Australians a bit. And so there is, I think, a real opportunity there for, for beef in particular, uh, but agriculture in general. You know, the, the U.S., as, as you know better than I do, we, you know, really has some great agricultural products, very competitive worldwide. And the, the Chinese are uh, getting wealthier, and their demand for our products has intensified. Obviously, there's this little matter of a trade war going on that, that's gotten away a bit, but I, I think that uh, we're at least we're not going to see, you know, we're going to see uh, at least staying constant with, with U.S. agriculture sales to China, um, potentially going up depending on how this trade war gets managed. 
Well, and that's really where I wanted to pick your brain. Obviously, with your background in trade law, I figured you might be the guy to turn to with this question. Simon, phase one, the the much lauded deal from the Trump administration to reopen and kind of put a, a, a thaw on the trade war has come to an end. It ended January 1st, 2022. We're now back to where we were in 2018. Tell me what comes next on the trade law picture with China. Well, the person to talk to about this, to listen to, is Catherine Todd, U.S. Trade Representative. And so, you know, after months of people badgering her, saying, hey, what's our China trade policy going to be? She gave a speech in October uh, where I, I can tell you what she said. I'm not sure exactly what it means. What she said is the phase one deal is the framework we're operating under. Um, when asked about uh, the possibility of a phase two deal, she seemed pretty dismissive. So now, as you say, the phase one deal expired. Well, it sort of expired. The purchase commitments under it expired. There's a whole set of kind of broader rules that are, are still in effect. So what does it mean when she says that's the current framework we're operating under, that's what we're going to use? It's not clear. I mean, the way she's presented it is that what the Biden administration will do is go to their Chinese trade counterparts with any concerns they have and say, hey, do something about this. Um, but, but that's not very transparent, and she didn't get very specific. You know, what products is she going to be pushing, um, you know, to, to the extent that China hasn't complied with the phase one deal? Um, you know, what, what recourse would the U.S. take? She's really, really left a lot of that vague. What she's basically said is the phase one deal is the framework and then left us all guessing as to what this means. Now, my explanation for this, is the best one I can come up with, is the politics the politics of trade are very complicated for the Biden administration. They would really rather do nothing on trade because they don't want to upset the progressive left who's trade skeptical, and they don't want to raise the ire of the nationalist right who's trade skeptical. So they're just trying to keep their heads down and not do anything new that they can be criticized for. So they're saying we're sticking with phase one, even though, as you point out, some key elements of it don't exist anymore, have expired. Well, and one of the things that uh, Catherine Tai said as she was discussing China was maybe we don't look at a free trade approach, we look at a managed trade approach. Simon, in the context of, of global trade, what does it mean to be managed trade? Well, people throw that term around a lot, and I'm not always sure what they mean, but I think that the phase one deal certainly gives us a really good example of that. So. Um, part of the phase one deal was these purchase commitments where China says, China promises, we are going to buy over a two-year period $200 billion more of U.S. goods compared to this baseline of, of 2017. That, I think, is sort of a textbook definition of managed trade. In contrast, sort of a more pure trade liberalization or free trade approach would be where both sides to a trade agreement lower their tariffs and then we just see what happens. Does trade increase? I mean, we don't know. We think it probably will, but we don't know to what extent. Um, so so this, the idea of setting specific numerical targets or having quotas on trade, I think that's more of the managed trade approach, uh, whereas the lowering tariffs is more of the you know, traditional trade liberalization approach. So you know, the Trump administration, I think, went pretty hard for managed trade. Uh, the Biden administration is sticking with it to some extent, um, but pulling back in a couple areas. Uh, so, I, you know, I think what we're, we're seeing from the Biden administration is moderating a bit on the managed trade, but not really moving towards trade liberalization. I mean, they're just, there are a couple instances here and there. They just announced that India was going, they signed a deal with India that India was going to allow U.S. port products there. Um, so here and there on the margins, they're pushing it uh, for, for trade liberalization. But when asked specifically um, about what she thought of the idea of market access, opening uh, foreign markets to, to more U.S. goods, Catherine Tai seemed pretty skeptical. So, so I think we're, the managed trade might be moderated a bit, but we're not going um, very far towards trade liberalization. We're just sort of stuck in, in no man's land, I guess. Okay. Well, you know, and as we think about how China relates to the world, obviously trade law and rules with the U.S. matter as well. But you touched on earlier, Simon, it matters how China is trading with the rest of the world. And recently, Australia and China have been in a tiff, a trade tiff, so to speak. Bring us up to speed. What happened there? And is it starting to get any better? It's not getting any better. So, you know, it's complicated. There are a lot of things going on here. Um, 
you know, I think that everybody has concerns now about national security issues related to China, human rights issues related to China. And I think that, generally speaking, governments can, can manage that well enough. But the problem is when governments say a little too much or go a little too far in their criticism, China reacts very strongly. And I think that's what happened with Australia. It's not clear to me that they were doing things that were much different than, than, than others were doing in relation to China and, you know, in relation to their concerns about human rights or security. But I think they, that they had, you know, key leaders say some things that really put China off, and then it just intensified. And you're seeing that right now with, with Lithuania as well. China's in a spat with Lithuania, a much smaller country, you know, not as big a deal, but still. So, so you know, so Australia's kind of tough words on certain issues uh, just really provoked China and, you know, cause them to take some, some trade restrictive actions that, you know, Australia is still, you know, feeling the effects of. And it just becomes hard to come back from that, you know, other than an Australian apology, which they're not going to give, you know, how do you get, how do you get China to, to calm down about their concerns? And no one seems to know how to do that. Just managing the relationship with this um, rising power, uh, the China, that's feeling very confident, bordering on arrogant, um, you know, it's, it's just really hard to manage that. If you say the wrong thing, you just find yourself in a position where you, you just you can't get back to normal. And so, so that's where Australia is right now. And everybody around the world is just trying to figure out how to manage this exactly. What can we say about our concerns with China? How do we say it? You know, if you say it publicly, you, you tend to get yourself in trouble. So uh, I think it's a question of, yeah, how do you, how do you manage these things privately, quietly, in a way to you know keep China from getting too riled up and upset, and then you're know, taking um, you know trade restrictive retaliatory actions against you. Yeah, it it is a country that can react very quickly and very abruptly to things said publicly, Simon. I think that's a really good point. As you look out here in the short term, are there any news events you're keeping an eye on that our listeners need to be aware of? You know, there's, there's been just a lot of watching and waiting in the trade world. Um, you know, is the Biden administration going to take any initiative anywhere on trade? What they've tried to do is moderate some of the disputes with the Europeans, and I think that's worked well. What they've said they're going to do is, in the Indo-Pacific, is create a new economic framework that's not like a traditional trade agreement. That's the one I'm watching in relation to China. What does that mean exactly? If it's not a traditional trade agreement, what is it? And we're still waiting to, to see that surprise. All right. We'll have to keep an eye out. Simon, we'll get you back on when that comes to the fore. Thanks for joining us. And folks, stick around. When we return, we will talk the future of E15 with Joe Kikash from Growth Energy. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system because I know they've got my back. Their spray early weed control guarantee helps me get the most out of early season applications. If I experience less than commercially acceptable performance, I'm eligible for up to $18 per acre on additional applications. That's a system I can depend on. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system. See program details at sprayearlyguarantee.com. Guarantee is subject to program restrictions. Always follow pesticide label directions. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we take a look at the grain sector, soybeans are still showing some pressure, but coming off their lows here as we work through the morning trade with corn turning a little bit higher now. Wheat futures have remained higher here as we work through the morning session. We did get a sale of 3.7 million bushels of soybeans to Mexico for this marketing year. Now, also earlier Tuesday, Brazil's crop agency, CONAP, reduced its estimate of Brazil's soybean crop from 142.8 million metric tons to 140.5 or 5.16 billion bushels in 21-22. The estimate for Brazil's corn crop was reduced from 117.2 million metric tons to 112.9 or 4.44 billion bushels. 
That's something that we are watching. We expected a reduction there after we've seen many private analysts make reductions over the last couple of weeks. We'll see what the USDA says tomorrow with their big USDA January numbers, which will be out at 11 a.m. Central Time. There'll be a lot of data to chew through those numbers tomorrow. Right now, March corn up one, six and three quarters. May corn up one at 6.02 and a quarter. January soybeans down nine and a quarter, 13.65 and a half. March down three and three quarters at 13.81. Soybean meal, January down 260 a ton at 4.25. January beat oil up 25 points at 58.14. March Chicago wheat three and a quarter higher, 7.65 and a quarter. March Kansas City wheat up eight at 7.86 and a quarter. March spring wheat up six and three quarters at 9.21. Mixed action in livestock, February live cattle up 52, 136.77. April up two, 140.60. January feeder cattle down 10, 160.82. February lean hogs 12 lower, 78.25. April down 57 at 84.12. Crude oil up $1.24 at 79.47. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. You know, yesterday on the program, we had a conversation with Jackie Fatka, the Farm Progress Policy Editor, about uh, the lack of updates from the Supreme Court last week. We were expected to get decisions on Proposition 12 out in California. We were expected to get decisions on E15 on Friday, as well as an update on the Clean Water Act from that court. They punted, uh, spent most of their time discussing, discussing the vaccine, didn't get a chance to get to those issues. Well, on Monday, the Supreme Court did address the E15 case. Joining us today to discuss it and the future of E15 is Joe Kekesh. He is the general counsel at Growth Energy, the case, the, the, the group that brought the case to the Supreme Court's attention. Joe, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks so much for having me, Mike. I understand the Supreme Court made a decision on whether or not to hear the Growth Energy E15 case. Joe, can you bring us up to speed? Well, you know, we're certainly disappointed that the court did not grant our petition to, to hear our challenge to the D.C. Circuit opinion. Uh, we believe that EPA's rulemaking was a, you know, a well-reasoned decision to extend the RVP waiver to E15, which is a fuel blend that actually has a, a lower RVP than E10. So really strong policy reasons uh, that would further congressional intent to extend that waiver, but the court declined to hear it. So that means as of now, we're going to be staying on this schedule where E15 can't be sold in the summer months in a lot of states in the country. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't go that far. We have to be clear about what what this case means. The challenge to uh, the D.C. Circuit opinion is certainly closed off, but we continue to explore all potential avenues to try to make E15 a reality in the summer of 22 and beyond. That includes federal regulatory options, uh, includes options. you know, with rulemaking with EPA, there are still avenues for us to continue to explore and try to to make this a reality. So this is one avenue that has certainly been closed out because of the the Supreme Court's determination not to take up the case, but it's not the end of the road for our industry by any means. 
So you touched on some of those other options. What is the next plan of attack for getting E15 at pumps around the country year round? Where do, where do you go from here? Well, you know, I think our strategy is, is has it always been, is, is three-pronged at least, right? Which is advocating in front of the agency for a regulatory fix, promoting bipartisan federal solutions that clarify that low-carbon biofuel blends can and should be available year-round to reduce emissions at the pump. I mean, there are two bipartisan bills already out there, one in the Senate and one in the House, uh, the Consumer and Fuel uh, Retailer Choice Act and the Year-Round Fuel Choice Act that our champions in the Midwest and elsewhere have really been uh, getting strongly behind to make sure that we can make this a reality for, for the industry. And they're also looking at commercial potential commercial alternatives for our retail partners, who many of whom have invested a significant amount of resources. And I really believe in the, in the environmental benefits and consumer benefits of E15. Well, let's talk about that legislation. You've got bipartisan support there. Joe, hearing the, the lay of the land in Washington, D.C., it sure sounds like it's tough to get anything across the finish line right now. What do you think the, the possibility is that uh, these bills will actually get passed and provide some concrete certainty? Well, I, I wouldn't want to hazard a, 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 term, a guess about whatever Congress does. As you know, it's been quite a volatile past couple of years. Uh, but I will say that these bills are very straightforward corrections uh, in the sense that they make clear that the E15 should be entitled to the same types of uh, vapor pressure, uh, waivers and benefits that uh, E10 and other gasoline blends achieve. And so I, it, to my mind, it's a pretty easy sell as a matter of policy. Uh, but again, as you said, uh, getting much through Congress is always going to be an uphill battle. But at least on that score, I think we have a lot, a, a lot to, to put forward. On the advocate side, on the regulatory issues, as you work with this EPA, as you work with this USDA under the Biden administration, I think folks out here in farm country feel as though they talk a lot about decarbonization, but renewable fuels aren't always at the fore of that conversation, and they're right here, they should be. Are you sensing a move in this admin to support biofuels a little bit more as time has gone on? Well, you know, Administrator Regan at EPA made clearly stated to us and to and publicly that he wanted to get the RFS back on track and he wanted to make sure that the full benefits of the RFS are, are provided. So I take that to mean, and I'm hoping that it means that EPA will take seriously that the RFS is an environmental statute, that renewable fuels provide significant environmental benefits, and they need to be better recognized. You know, we're in a pivotal point in the history of the RFS uh, in that the future uh, success of the program really will depend a lot on EPA's interpretation of the carbon reduction benefits of biofuels. We have a very powerful and strong story to tell about those environmental benefits, greenhouse gas benefits, and we've already uh, communicated them uh, to the agency and we're hoping that they'll take them seriously and it will be reflected in robust volumes going forward. And to that end, with the, the most recent release of the volume obligations for 2020, 2021, and 2022, obviously they're under comment right now at the EPA, but that seems as though they were getting on board with renewable fuels, Joe. You know, that's right. I mean, if you look at 2022 in particular, uh, it brings us back up to 15 billion gallons, which is where the statute puts us uh, already. So we do take heart in, uh, in EPA's uh, proposal here that the understanding the trend line for renewable fuels can only be positive, given that the benefits that it does provide. So we're hoping that in the final rule, it, it, it implements that proposal and, and, and makes sure that those 15 billion gallons are reality, you know, not uh, reduced in any way by small refinery exemptions or by any, any other reductions that would uh, dilute the benefits that biofuels provide. Joe, I understand being general counsel at a group like Growth Energy, you're probably very active. And I would think that a potential Supreme Court case has eaten up a lot of your time for the past uh, year and a half. As you sit and look now to the future, what are the next legal challenges uh, you think our listeners need to be aware of for ethanol or E15 or advanced biofuels going forward? That's a really good question, Mike. And I, what I'll say about litigation is that you know, we are very strategic in the in the litigation that we pursue to make sure that our industry is well represented and to make sure that the, the, the RFS is implemented as Congress intended it to be. So what I'm looking at and what I look at every year is, well, how does EPA implement the directive that Congress gave it under the RFS to ensure that renewable volumes are met 
to further the environmental purposes of the RFS by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, to strengthen our rural economy. Uh, those are sort of the factors we take into consideration. So we have this rulemaking coming up right now for 2020 through 2022 RVOs, but we also have what's called the set, which will set volumes uh, in 2023 and beyond as we move off of these uh, statutory numbers that Congress implemented you know, 12, uh, over 10 and 12 years ago. Uh, we're in a new era, and I want to make sure, again, that the purposes of the RFS, congressional intent, uh, in furthering biofuels uh, as part of our transportation fuel mix continues to be honored and that the integrity of the RFS is upheld. And Joe, you touched on something there that I don't think a lot of us realize, and that is the RFS when it was written and passed and updated back in 05 and, and 07, 08, around in there, um, it included statutory limits. We have to blend this much ethanol, and those end here in 2022. So the conversations about setting those volumes are only going to grow in importance in years to come, aren't they? You know, it's a good question, and, and EPA has already started that conversation through these latest RBO proposals. Uh, you may have rec uh, noticed that they characterize them as a reset, right, where they have to use six different factors to determine what the volumes would be, and those six factors include environmental, energy security, uh, e economic benefits, and so forth, and, uh, you know, the template for that has been set uh, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the future of the RFS program. So rather than uh, thinking about 15 billion gallons as a statutory baseline, EPA is going to use a whole set of different considerations in reaching those numbers. Now, that being said, EPA also has to look to the history of the program and the success of the RFS, which to our mind supports at a minimum 15 billion gallons going forward. Uh, so we have to take all of both the history and those factors into play as, as EPA, uh, you know, sets the path for the future of the RFS for the industry and for our nation. Absolutely. And it's vital that, of course, the right people, I think, are in front of the EPA with the data. It, Joe, has that something, as you think of the past several years in this industry, it seems as though the ethanol industry is getting so much better about having quality data. When you talk to folks who are writing regulatory or legislative action, does having more numbers, solid numbers, help support the ethanol case? Well, I'm particularly proud of our industry for presenting and, and bringing to the table with EPA solid data and science that supports the expansion of biofuels. You know, EPA has to take that in consideration. It has to be a responsible steward of the RFS, and part of that responsibility is updating the science and recognizing science, good science when it sees it. So the, the, the jury is still out, I'll say, on whether that advocacy translates into volumes that we think are better, you know, better represent congressional intent to improve the, you know, environmental profile of our tra nation's transportation fuel supply. But I always say, I think our industry, I'm very proud of, of, of what we've done to show the benefits, both climate and economic, and, and in, in several areas of, of expanded biofuels availability. Uh, and that will be continued to be part of our advocacy uh, going forward. Absolutely. And like you said, you can do the research, but you can't always make them listen to it. You could lead a horse to water, so to speak, but Joe, but you can't always make them drink. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. As more updates come out, Growth Energy, I'm sure, keeps on top of them. Where can folks go to stay up to date with the work uh, you're doing? Uh, please go to our website at www.growthenergy.org. Fantastic. Really appreciate Joe Kakash, General Counsel at Growth Energy, taking the time to talk to us. Joe, thanks so much and good luck with future legal battles. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. Dwayne Bossy of Bolt Marketing will join us to talk about the market. Stick with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. 
I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Ben Lydon, the Director of Commodity Risk with CHS Propane, about planning for propane needs year-round. Ben, most farmers and ranchers understand the value of planning for their seasonal propane supply, but why should they plan year-round? If we look at our inventories in the United States, we're sitting at a five-year low for physical inventory in the U.S., and so that's really where kind of this concern over availability and supply has come from. And based on projections through this winter, we've had a relatively mild winter so far this year without a large increase. But recently here, those weather patterns have changed as we come into the new year and we're starting to see some of that cold weather have an impact. And so folks are looking at how are we going to be able to make it to the end of winter with, with enough propane to to carry us all the way through. And I think that's that remains to be the, the big question at the moment, but that's kind of why it's become more important that folks are looking at this month to month rather than just kind of planning once a year and, and moving on. Ben, what can farmers and ranchers do now to keep ahead of these factors? There's already enough volatility within their local supply chain. We're seeing that in terms of like transportation issues and the truck driver shortages all across the country. So there's enough enough day-to-day issues there that also trying to navigate physical supply and pricing issues that come up. I would say that work with your local cooperative, find out about some of the supply planning tools that CHS has to offer and help develop and anticipate some of those volume swings month to month. Uh, and that way we can help plan and make sure that you know sudden impacts or changes in availability don't impact your their business in a way that is detrimental. That's Ben Lydon, the Director of Commodity Risk with CHS Propane. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, folks. You know, we've been talking a lot today about the policies and the issues that impact our pricing. And now I think it's time to talk about where the rubber meets the road, which is, of course, the pricing of agriculture commodities and the ag markets. Joining us to help break it down today is Dwayne Bossy of Bolt Marketing up in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, we've been talking a lot today about selling U.S. pork into India, but it doesn't look like the market's responding all that uh, loudly to that announcement. (laughs) No, the hog market has kind of had a, a pullback-type uh, phase here the last couple of days. I should say more than a pullback, a pretty pretty sharp decline in prices, hasn't it? Uh, we hit some resistance, I think, when we got back up to the old contract highs in the February and April board. But you know, overall, I think, hope we uh, find support really soon. The hog herd, you know, just is down in numbers in the U.S. and more than we anticipate. So I think we'll find some support here pretty good and be able to rally back up. I think a lot of folks in the trade today are really getting prepared for the World Agricultural Supply and Demand estimates coming out from USDA tomorrow and the quarterly grain stocks. Dwayne, it looks like the corn market is just sort of treading water here north of six bucks in the old crop. Where do you see us moving here and how should farmers prepare for tomorrow's data dump from USDA? All great questions. You're right. We have, once we busted up above $6, we kind of been just trading sideways since. You know, overall, I think the corn market has really good support underneath this market. Um, a lot of risk tomorrow. Uh, you know, almost too much numbers to try to outguess the report, but I know it's my job, so I do my best guess at it. And I think the quarterly stocks report could be bullish. I just don't think we had the old crop going into harvest that USDA suggests. So we could see a quarterly stocks number a little bit less than the trades anticipating, and that would be supportive for this market. And, you know, like I said, a lot more into the report as well, you know, yield, production, demand. But if that would happen, that would be friendly to the market. And we should see this market going higher, but you know, a good way to protect is is weekly put options to get through a report like this. We, we always tend to look for those when these big reports come around. Have those weekly put options uh, skyrocketed in price here recently since the report is so close, Dwayne, or can you still get them fairly affordably? And no, they are pretty expensive because, you know, if if I'm going to buy the put option because I don't want the risk of the downside, someone has to be willing to sell that to me. And, and for them to get paid, they want a little bit higher premium. So we're still talking 10 or 11 cents for a put option that only lasts through this week. Uh, so, no, that is expensive when I think of options in general. But when you think of the volatility in this market and uh, the unknowns that are out there for tomorrow, um, you know, if you've got all your old crop corn left and you're just a big bull, it would probably be a pretty good risk management strategy to buy those puts and risk that 11 cents. And, and if you're wrong, that means the market went higher, right? Right. And there there you've got the payout when you sell the cash. Dwayne, we've also got soybean numbers coming out tomorrow. Do you have any thoughts as you look ahead to uh, the numbers released tomorrow by USDA? You know, I don't see any big surprises in the soybean report. Um, a lot of moving parts. Uh, I do think, you know, the South America crop is deteriorating. That drought is really nasty in Argentina. But, you know, Conab came out this morning and they reduced the crop size um, probably more than I anticipated. Maybe not as much as the bulls want. I think it was down like 1.6 percent, a little bit larger in the corn crop. But it's heading in that direction where they're admitting that they have a problem and this drought is going to start reducing their crop size. But the problem with tomorrow's report is USDA gathered this information a couple of weeks ago. So the drought wasn't as intense then. So I think we'll be disappointed. I don't think they're going to drop the South America production sharply tomorrow. So might be a slightly bearish report for soybeans at face value. But let's really watch a trade action afterwards. I think the buyers come back into this market because of the drought. And I think we start trading the weather forecast again quickly. And as you look at the weather forecast, I mean, with beans, you know, knocking on $14, Dwayne, can we get up above it? What's your upside price target here in uh, old crop? I, I think we can get back up above it, but we get back to that 1410 to 1420 area. I kind of feel like uh, enough is enough. You, you've had your South America weather scare. Here's your bullish run off of the harvest lows. Basis is improved. I feel like that's the time for even me, somebody who's been a little greedy here lately on our farm, to just dump the old crop, be happy with the price, and move on to looking at 2022. You know, speaking of 2022, that acreage discussion is heating up. Dwayne, I know you talk to folks across the Corn Belt. Uh, What are you hearing? What's the inside scoop? Are we getting a lot of acreage shifted here in this next year? 
It's going to be very interesting um, in the in the plains up here in the Dakotas, and that's really where the acres do shift. Um, there, there's some fertilizer booked, but not nearly as much as a year prior, and of course it's very expensive. So you know, where we set the spring insurance prices next month will be important as well. That'll give everyone their guarantees. Um, and then spring weather is going to be just huge, Mike. I mean, we had record low prevent plant area basically last year uh, that causes me to be a little concerned if we would get wet in the dakotas these prices have to go higher to guarantee we get the acres and it seems like every crop needs those acres for next year so it'll be an interesting acreage battle it certainly will and you touched on the dakotas i mean you guys didn't have much prevent plant last year but if that comes back we could just be losing acreage up there in the dakota region Right. That's my point exactly. You know, watch and see where this February insurance price is set and know in the back of your mind that when we get to late May and early June, we need to have a very high price for a producer up here in some wet area to go out and mud that crop in to get those acres. Otherwise, it'll be pretty easy for them to say, I'll just take prevent plant then and, and take my insurance guarantee and walk away for the year. I, nobody likes prevent plant up here, but, but it is an option, sadly. It is. And uh, Dwayne, before we let you go on the cattle market, we're seeing that cash trade there last week at 140. Do you expect us to hang in up in that region for this week? I, I, yeah, I think we can hang in there and maybe even go a little bit higher. Box beef market's going up and slaughter's been down so far the first couple of weeks of this new year. So I think we can go higher. All right. That would be some good news there. Cattle feeders would love to see it. Do you see us poking through 145, Dwayne, or would that be a little too high? Let's I, I don't know. It, it seems a little high. It'll depend on the packers and how much they need to buy the show list and how much cattle they own. But yeah, I am a little friendly. The market's pulled back here recently, but I think we found good support here this morning. Gotta love seeing some good support. Always appreciate your insight. Dwayne Bossy of Bolt Marketing, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, anytime, Mike. Thanks for having me. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll hear from Arlen Suderman from Stonex as well on these markets and a whole lot more related to agriculture. Thanks for listening to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, Farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription. Has an address in the United States has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to fda.gov slash BeSafeRx.